Welcome to the 18th episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. So when I got into the studio today, uh, which is basically Russell's home, I said, Russell, it smells pretty good in here. What's that flowery scent? Russell looks at me and goes, it's the litter box. It's, I use a scented litter box. I'm like, so lightning's poop don't stink. <laughs> I swear, Charlie. Yeah. I Yeah. <laughs> that's all you can answer so yeah uh, apparently uh, I, i've been using the wrong cat, cat litter and instead of using gravel i'm gonna go out and get some of this stuff where it actually makes it smell where really it actually good. smells a little better yeah yeah all right so there's your cat tip for today <laughs> they, they make scented cat litter now so if you're worried about owning a cat and as we always say if you're gonna get a cat get a rescue because both our cats are rescues so we're trying to support that. Tell us a little bit about the Patreon. Yeah, don't forget about our Patreon page, uh, www.patreon.com uh, backslash two tankers and cat. Pretty much, we're just asking you for a little bit of support each month. Um, keep our operations going, and, and eventually we'd kind of like to do some traveling, and that way we can bring some extra content to you folks on a future podcast. And, what we really want to do is start interviewing some folks at, at some of these museums that we plan on going to. And so you're going to be getting content for, for your support. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And then that support, like I said, will, will help out with our not only travel costs, but also our, uh, new equipment, new equipment and, and fiber and optics. Yeah. And we, we have a, we do have, you know, substantial cost. And for two bucks, you do get our uh, chance to platoon with us on Discord. Um, mm-hmm. We'll play any game that you want to play. You get uh, access to our uh, private channel, YouTube. See some of the videos that we're posting. Uh, some of the drone footage of the tanks that we're taking out and see. The other thing that we wanted to cover today, more and more tank museums are closing. Actually, Russ, I said, think you said there was three that's already closed so far? Yeah, I was looking. We're getting ready to take the trip to Indiana this year, and I noticed that there's already three medium to smaller size museums in Indiana that have already closed. I mean, they just, they're going away. Yeah. I don't know how else to put it. And what's happening is a lot of these uh, private collectors are buying these things up, and you don't know if we'll ever get to see these monuments again. Yeah, and I know our uh, people down in Fort Benning, uh, Rob Cohen, and uh, he's having trouble. He lost his mechanic. There's a private collector out in Wyoming, and if this guy is listening, we need to go out there and interview him. Yeah. If you're one of our fans, give us a comment and we will come to wyoming and hang out with your tanks yeah yeah <laughs> but uh that mechanic uh went up there to help with their private collection and wow. we can't blame them you know i'm sh- sure the pay was pretty good to oh. move out all the way out to wyoming oh yeah which is a beautiful state oh it a is wonderful state we were there a couple of years ago and yeah and wonderful uh, place to visit and now they have a tank museum and it gives them an excuse to go back but i think it's a private collection is so, it a private collection yeah so i think Maybe we might need to make some friends before there we, we go, go up there and yeah. start using drone footage. And uh, stuff. Uh-huh. We might have to get some permission. So if you know anybody that's connected to that, tell them, give us a message. Uh, we'll support them. We'll sure. Say, hey, Heck yeah. Yeah, we'll get your tanks out there. For this episode, we are going to have to give out a trigger warning. We are going to be talking about Africa, uh, South Africa, apartheid. 
Um, we are also going to be talking about uh, communist, communist bloc countries, Cuban re- revo- revolutionaries, um, apartheid. So if any of that triggers you, please, you might want to skip this episode and go back and watch one of our other episodes. We're giving you a chance to understand we're going to talk about history. We don't support either side in this. We're just trying to give you what history has taught taught us. Uh, we're basically our first point. We're going to be talking about the South African Oliphant tank, one of my favorites. It's a, it's a cool looking tank, and we're going to put pictures of it. And the second point is uh, we are going to be talking about the battle of, and I'm going to kill this. How do you say it, Rust? Guido Quanavale. Guido, and also known as Black Stalingrad. The South African border wars is something I have just started studying kind of in the middle right now of doing an episode on the Ethiopian uh, Somali war. There was a big tank battle out out of that. And uh, basically the main tank commander there was uh, a Cuban general that we're going to be talking about in this episode. Um, So let's get on the elephant. The elephant is also known as the African elephant. Russ, tell us a little bit about it. Yes, the Oliphant MK-1A main battle tank uh, takes its African's name from the African elephant. The Oliphant is the largest land animal, and thus the Oliphant main battle tank is aptly named as it was the heaviest military vehicle in the then South African Defense Force. Which is also known as the SADF. Yes, and we will visit some of these acronyms later. Yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of acronyms when you're talking about uh, African border wars and stuff like that. And the post-democratic South African National Defense Force was called the SANDF. The Oliphant MK-1A is adapted for the African battle space. It was designed and produced at a time when South Africa was subject to ever more strict international arms embargoes because of its segregation policies or the apartheid. So the UN was like, uh... The whole apartheid thing. They were having a tough time to get any type of uh, UN help or any kind of military help. And this was set against the backdrop of the Cold War in South Africa, which saw a steep rise in liberation movements backed by Eastern Bloc communist countries such as Cuba and the Soviet Union. I'm going to break in and discuss uh, Che Caveira. Che was a uh, was from Argentina, and he was a Marxist. He was also a doctor, uh, author, a guerrilla leader, uh, a diplomat, a military theorist, and a major figure in the Cuban Revolution. Uh, in early 1965, Guevara went to Africa to offer his knowledge and experience as a guerrilla you know, fighter to the ongoing conflict in the Congo. Guevara thought Africa was imperialism's weak link. So it had enormous revolutionary uh, potential. So on November 3rd, 1966, uh, Guevara secretly arrived in Bolivia after, you know, this, you know, going over to help start all this uh, revolution. So he arrived in Bolivia and uh, when he was there, the basically everybody was looking for uh, Che. They were like, hey, he's a revolutionary. But he had went over to Africa to help all this and made a lot of people mad. So when he got over to Bolivia, they were having some revolutionary problems, but they sent their troops in to capture him. And he got shot twice. Twice. Well, when he was shot and captured, they decided they were going to go ahead and execute him. Uh, They had him in a hut, and uh, a sergeant entered the hut to shoot him. Shea reportedly stood up and uh, told the sergeant, 
I know you're, you've come to kill me. Uh, shoot you, coward. You're only going to kill a man. You know, you're not going to kill the revolution. Uh, Guevara was shot nine times by this sergeant. This included five times in his legs, once in his right shoulder and his arm, and once in the chest and throat. He, he's like 11 gunshots before they finally killed him. This is the guy that helped spark all these revolutions. That's how the Cubans basically got, got involved and being in the Soviet bloc and their whole Cold War in Africa. I'm sorry, Russ, let's get back to the elephant. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about the development of the elephant main battle tank. It was the final evolutionary development of the British centurions in South Africa service before the end of the Cold War. During 1953, South Africa, as part of the Commonwealth, purchased 87 Mark III and 116 Mark V centurions from Great Britain. 100 centurions were sold to Switzerland in the 1960s to generate funds for the purchase of Mirage fighter airplanes. And as part of the purchase agreement, Switzerland was allowed to pick the best 100 centurions from the South African inventory, which they did. And this action virtually halved the South African tank capability. In the years that followed, the remaining tanks were used for training and large-scale exercises such as those held in 1966. And, and this border order that we're going to talk about. Now, they took these centurions or, and sold them to Switzerland, and when they got the money for them, they were buying these Mirage fighters. Fighter jets, yeah. Yeah, and, and let's just say the Mirage fighter jet at its time was very, very, very good. We might talk about that in a future episode. But they upscaled these Centurions and kind of messed around with the armor and stuff. And basically, they turned these Centurions, after improving them and upgrading them, uh, came into the Oliphant. Give us some specifications. Yes, the dimensions, uh, 7.6 meters or 24.8 feet long, 3.39 meters or 11.12 feet wide, and about 2.94 meters or 9.64 feet tall. Still shorter than my Lee. Still shorter than the Lee. We haven't been able to top that yet in, <laughs> in what? Or, uh, what? We're on episode 18. Episode 18. So. And still haven't got a taller tank than the Lee. If anybody out there knows any tank taller than the Lee. M3 Lee, let us know, man. Yeah, because it's 10 foot tall and real proof. <laughs> America. What was the total weight when it was battle ready? Yeah, the battle ready weight of 56 tons. And it had a crew of four. Well, what kind of engine did it have? It had a Continental 29-liter turbocharged air-cooled V12 diesel engine, and it <laughs> produced about 750 horsepower. <laughs> nice. So that averaged about 13.39 horsepower per ton. Per ton. That's a good moving tank not there. Not shabby. Not too shabby. V12 turbocharged air-cooled diesel yeah. engine. Yeah. I'll, I'll take that. Um, what kind of suspension? It had a 6 Horstman suspension units, uh, three per side. So what kind of top speed are we talking? Top road speed was about 45 kilometers per hour or 28 miles per hour. And off-road was about 30 kilometers per hour or 18.6 miles per hour. And I've said this over and over, ladies and gentlemen, 30 kph or 18 miles an hour off-road in a tank, that's a little rough. It would be a little rough. Yeah. yeah. So what kind of uh, main armament did it have? It had a 105mm GT3B semi-automatic quick-firing gun. Nice. So you got the 105 with a quick-fire. What kind of rounds did it have? Yeah, the main gun rounds included the APDS, the APFSDS, heat 
hash and white phosphorus. We're going to have to talk about those different rounds yeah, later. Yeah, we will. That'd probably almost be an episode in itself, to be honest with you, just talking about different tank rounds. and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll cover them in a little yeah, bit, here in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, what's, what was the secondary armament? It had one 7.62 millimeter coaxial browning machine gun, and it also had another uh, 7.62 millimeter turret browning machine gun. So it had the coaxial. Yeah. And then it had one for the turret. Okay, what kind of armor are we talking on this thing? It had 118 millimeter or 4.64 inches glacius armor at uh, 60 degrees. Had 152 millimeter or 6 inch turret armor on it. And 51 millimeters, 2 inches on the sides. 40 millimeters or 1.22 inches in the rear. Nice. Not bad armor. So total production of these hulls and these tanks how many total did they have right around 153 were produced and like we said they were using them for training and then these border wars kicked off i want to talk more about the gun i know uh and and let's talk about some of the rounds i know the 105 had some different variants why don't we get into that and yeah the 105 millimeter made use of uh, l52 armor piercing discarding Sabot rounds or APDS. So that's what APDS is. Stands yeah. for Armor Piercing Discarding Sabot. It also could make use of the M456 High Explosive Anti Tank Round or Heat Round. Right. And those actually came from Israel. And the heat rounds could effectively penetrate 420 millimeters of rolled homogeneous armor at any range. 420. 420 millimeter armor. We, we need to put that 105 I, gun on our Sherman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And by 1987, South Africa received the improved armor-piercing fin-stabilized discarding sabot round. So that's the APFSDS round. Yes. And those rounds were actually designated the M111 rounds, and they had a muzzle velocity of about 1,455 meters per second in a range of three kilometers and could penetrate 390 millimeters of rolled homogeneous armor at 10 meters wow another powerful round right there yeah additionally the elephant can fire the denel m9210 high explosive round which contains a TNT HNS filled an effective blast radius of what 17 meters, and the round is fired with a muzzle velocity of about 700 millimeters meters per second, to range about nine kilometers. So that makes pretty good, not bad. You know, yeah. artillery yeah. round, I guess. Yeah. Okay. What would the tell us about the white phosphorus? Yeah, the white phosphorus rounds can also be fired at a distance of about nine kilometers. Also, so it was it was another one of their options that they could. Fire out of that gun. Well, I, I know we want to talk about some HESH. Tell us about HESH. HESH actually stands for High Explosive Squash Head, and it's a type of explosive ammunition that is effective against tank armor and is also useful against buildings. It was fueled chiefly by the British Army as the main explosive round of its main battle tanks during the Cold War. Yeah. So if you wanted to learn about hash rounds, you did today. There you go. Before we get into uh, this battle of... Uh, Black Stalingrad. Um, the South African Defense Force tactics were uh, very closely based on the tactics used by Erwin uh, Rommel in North Africa in World War II when he crushed the British at Gazelle. So when you hear us talking about the battle plans, you're like, hey, this sounds like Rommel's plan. Yeah, they kind of opened the book and just kind of followed him. If you're going to follow anybody's 
tank tactics in Africa, Rommel's not a bad person. Well, Russ, uh, let's go ahead and get into the battle. The Battle of Quito, Guanavel was fought intermittently between August 14, 1987 and March 23, 1988, uh, south and east of the town of Quito, Guanavel, Angola, uh, by the People's Armed Forces for the Liberation of Angola. Or F-A-P-L-A, the FAPLA. Yeah. And also involved were Cuba, South Africa, and insurgents of the National Union of the Total Independence of Angola. Which they're... Is Acronym was UNITA, U-N-I-T-A. FAPLA, or F-A-P-L-A, was getting backed by Cuba and the South Af- or, uh, Cuba and the Soviets and the Soviet bloc countries. And then the South Africans were helping out the national, or UNITA. And this was during the uh, Angola Civil War and the South African Border War, right? Yes, true. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, the battle was the largest engagement of the Angolan conflict and the biggest conventional battle on the African continent since World War II. UNITA and its South African allies defeated a major FAPLA offensive towards Mavinga, preserving the former control of southern Angola. I think that was uh, Operation Wallpaper. We're going to talk about that. And uh, when they went into Mavinga. Mavinga, yeah. Yeah, they did a two-pronged attack to help push them back. But you can see where this is getting to be a big battle. This is starting to get ugly. They proceeded to launch a bloody but in- inconclusive counteroffensive on the FAPLA defensive positions around the Tumpo River east of Cuido, Quanavel. The Soviet Union supplied FAPLA with over a billion dollars worth of new military hardware for the purpose of this offensive, and between four and nine Soviet advisors were attached to the, each FAPLA unit on the brigade level. So the Soviets have kicked out a billion dollars of their top of the line equipment we're talking ak-47s t-54 tanks bazookas aircraft migs you know a billion dollars is quite a bunch that'll buy a lot of a lot of hardware and not only that they're sending out their advisors and up to nine soviet advisors were attached to each unit on the brigade level so they've got the training and they're getting the new guns they're not going down just to not start trouble. True, yes. South Africa, which shared a common border with Angola through the contested territory of Southwest Africa, was then determined to prevent FAPLA from gaining control of Mavinga and allowing insurgents of the People's Liberation Army of Namibia to operate in the region. Okay, so this region that we're going to be talking about later becomes the country of Nambia. The insurgents in that area... Uh, had the acronym PLAN, and that stood for the People's Liberation Army of Nambia. Okay, all right. I know this is getting confusing, people, but you can imagine the politics and the tribes in Africa. And basically what's happened is they've got a billion-dollar supply, and they're going to help these PLAN guys supposedly by moving in there. And the South Africans are like, "Uh, you don't get a billion dollars of stuff and just stop right there. So they're nervous. So they begin trying to help out Unita. So this was getting to be a really tense and ugly. After weeks of preliminary skirmishes, the two armies met on the Lomba River on September 6th. Throughout September and October, the SADF repulsed several FAPLA attempts to cross the Lomba River and destroyed most of the latter's vital bridging equipment. They're up there on this river, and they're starting to move south. 
And the South Africans are like, uh, uh uh-uh. You're not taking this billion dollars worth of tanks and equipment coming across. We're not going to allow that to happen. So they have these skirmishes, and they're starting to get pretty ugly. Repeated counterattacks by the SADF's 61 Mechanized Battalion Group resulted in the annihilation of FAPLA's 47 Brigade and the loss of its remaining bridgeheads, sending the remainder of the FAPLA units reeling back towards Quito Quanavale. These FAPLA... Uh, F-A-P-L-A, their 47th Brigade, which was their main spearhead, tries to get across these bridges. They have the bridging equipment, and the South Africans have just beat them back, killing tons of them, mm-hmm. shoved them back across the river, and now they're back in this town, and now they're screaming, hey, these South Africans are probably going to come across, and they're going to invade us now. During the second phase of the campaign, the SADF and UNITA made several unsuccessful attempts to encircle and destroy the surviving FAPLA forces before they could establish new defensive positions east of Quito Quanavel, an initiative known as Operation Hooper. However, FAPLA succeeded in concentrating its forces within a cramped perimeter between the Quito, Tumpo, and Dalla rivers known as the Tumpo Triangle. They were reinforced by a number of Cuban armored and motorized units who had become more directly committed to the fighting for the first time since the beginning of Cuba's military intervention in Angola in 1975. So now we have the Cubans coming in, and they've been involved since, like you were saying, 1975. The SADF and UNITA launched six heavy assaults on the Tumpo Triangle under the auspices of Operation Packer, inflicting serious casualties on the FAPLA. And despite suffering significant losses, the defending FAPLA and Cuban troops held their lines. The SADF and United disengaged in March of 1988 after laying a series of minefields southeast of Quito, Quanavel, to dissuade a renewed FAPLA offensive. So both sides claim victory. Cuban and FAPLA defenders had interpreted the SADF's Tupo Triangle campaign as part of a larger effort to seize the town of Quito itself and presented their uh, stand there as a successful defensive action. But the SADF maintained that it had achieved its basic objectives of halting their advancement, you know, towards South Africa uh, without needing, needing to occupy this area which would have entailed unacceptable losses of the uh, South African forces. Today, the battle is credited by some uh, with ushering the first round of trilateral negotiations mediated by the United States, which secured the withdrawal of Cuba and South African troops from Angola and Nambia by 1991. When they were at this discussion, Russ, they said, we, had a, we have to have a trilateral. We, we got to sit down with the Angolans, and we have to sit down with the... South Africans and the United States trying to mediate this. And the Angolas are like, N- N- we want the Cuban. From the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis and all the sanctions that we had about the Cubans, we didn't want to sit at the table. And the president at the time had said, listen, okay, they want the Cubans. The Soviets want the Cubans at the table. And they're basically demanding it. said, okay, you can sit at the table with the Cubans and talk about Angola, but we're not talking about anything that's not African. We're not talking about Cuban you know, sanctions. We're not talking about any of the Caribbean. They said, okay, okay, we'll sit down. When they sit down, they went to uh, South Africa and said, hey, we have a real problem with apartheid. 
we want you to do something by eliminating apartheid. But one of the Cuban tactics, they had their big Cuban cigars, and some of these guys didn't smoke, and they're in a little bitty room talking about this stuff. And these Cubans, generals and stuff, are sitting there blowing smoke in these American and uh, South African faces, and they're like, "Uh, okay, okay, Uh. what do you want? (laughs) What do you want? (laughs) And they're like, basically, we want uh, Mandela released. If you're not going to disband apartheid, we want you to go to Nelson Mandela and release him. And believe it or not, they released Mandela later on, and Mandela went Mandela went to Cuba, and him and President Castro became friends. Mandela, who Castro was kind of a hero to him, and he long he always had admired him and everything. So we've talked about the battle and how it ended, and what what it led to the eventual release of Mandela, uh, the end of apartheid. You know, so it did have major replications or major ripples. And we've talked about this, but let's talk about the operations, the actual battles. Tell us about the first operation. The first operation we'll talk about is the Operation Modular. Uh, The objective for it was to prevent the FAPLA from taking Manvinga from Unida and later attempt to destroy FAPLA forces east of the Quito River. Uh, The dates of this operation was August 4th to November 30th of 1987 and sometimes incorrectly called modular. It was a military operation by the South African Defense Forces during the South African Border War. During January 1987, the Angolans began to increase their air defense network in the Quito Quanavel region and by april they had begun to assemble a large force of tanks apcs truck and a large number of helicopters and fighters and strike aircraft at the town which indicated the build-up of new offensive on unita now this is this billion dollars of new hardware so they're coming in with new tanks new helicopters new aircraft but they're they're coming by may unita was discussing the situation with the south africans and by june SADF military intelligence teams were operating with United teams to monitor the Angola buildup. So South Africans are starting to get rumors that there's tons of new equipment and and soldiers and and there's going to be a major push. Well, if you got that much force and you're that close to the South African border, they're they're nervous. And and they know these, the only thing between them is uh, this uh, Unita. And so they sent their... Uh, special forces teams in there to start seeing and they're reporting back hey listen these are all brand new tanks and there's tons of them on june 2nd 1987 four brigades of the soviet-backed people's armed forces for the liberation of angola so the four brigades were the 47th the 59th the 16th and the 21st now these are all brigades that have all brand new tanks equipment and everything and they departed from this Angola town, this uh, town of Quito. Quito. Yeah. With the aim of capturing the United's stronghold at Marvaga, uh, which was the gateway to United's capital of Jambia. If this falls, they're going straight for the capital and that, that'll fall next. And then South Africa has got all sorts of problems. By June 15th, the plan was formulated to deploy units of 32 battalion and Valkyrie MRLs for a covert operation similar to Operation Wallpaper. Now, we talked about Operation Wallpaper. That was a, a two-pronged attack to do force the FAPLA back the first time. But now they've got a billion dollars worth of equipment. 
they got four brigades. Each one of these brigades has up to nine Soviet advisors showing them how to do this effective and co- coordinating them. You know, they're saying, this is the way you march. This is the way you're going to aim. This is the way. They're coming to take this whole capital and be right on the border. So South Africa is really worried about this. On June 22nd, Operation Modular came into operation with Colonel Jock Harris of the 32nd Battalion in command, but the forces would not be directly involved in the combat, and by mid-July, more of 32 battalion units were ordered to Mavinga with its complete force in place by early August. South Africa is still not wanting to get into this fight, but more and more of their special forces teams are coming back, and they're like, no, you don't understand. They're coming. You know, we're going to have to stop their push. And they start bringing more and more of his troops up. And he's like, okay, by August, here, they know a fight's coming. At the conclusion of the final phase of Operation Modular, uh, FAPLA casualties were estimated at 525 killed with the loss of 28 tanks, 10 BTR-60s, 85 other vehicles, and three SA-13 anti-aircraft missile systems, while the SADF was said to have lost 16 soldiers with 41 wounded. Okay, what we're saying, and I know this is very, you know, difficult to, you know, follow, the Soviet-advised FAPLED troops are pushing forward. They've got tanks, uh, these uh, BTR-60s, which are like armored personnel carriers, all these other vehicles, anti-aircraft missile systems. They're coming and they've been coming, and they've been only having pockets of resistance. So they continue to push, and then all of a sudden, boom, South African hits them hard. Hits them with artillery, hits them with tanks. We were talking about some of their high-explosive rounds can hit, you know, from nine miles away. And when they hit them uh, as hard as they do, they end up really just tearing up the FAPLA forces. The South Africans, what, lost 16 soldiers and had 41 wounded? That stopped them. Give us what happened in the aftermath. Operation Modular achieved the objective of halting the FAPLA advance against Unida at Mavinga and inflicted heavy losses on FAPLA. And after the FPLA offensive had been stopped, the South African slash Unida force went on to the offensive but failed to push them across the Quito River before November 30th, which was the deadline, thus ending Operation Modular and beginning Operation Hooper. So the Operation Modular was to push these guys past this river, and they'd hit them and forced them back, forced them back, and forced them back, and then they're like, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going any farther. We're digging in because we're not going behind this river. The next stage of the battle was this Operation Hooper, and that's to finish the push. Operation Hooper was a military operation in 1987 through 1988 by the South African Defense Force uh, during the South African Border War. This operation forms part of what has come to be called uh, the Battle of Quito Quanavel. The SADF objective was to drive the People's Armed Forces for the liberation of Angola, or FAPLA, west across the river or to destroy them, so as to assure that FAPLA was no longer a threat to the National Union for the total independence of Angola, which was in United in the southeast. So Operation Hooper, they've got them pushed up against the river. They want to push them back across the river, or they want to destroy them all. You know, just wipe out the entire thing, the entire threat. With no functioning armor or artillery remaining, the FAPLA 
units faced annihilation. On November 15th, the Angolan government requested urgent military assistance from Cuba. So the Angolas, they've lost a bunch of tanks. They've lost, well, we've listed what they've lost. And they're on the river getting ready to be pushed in the water and annihilated. So they're asking for Cuban help. They're like, gee, you got to come help us. Uh, so what was the Cuban objective? Yeah, the Cuban objective was securing the town of Quito, Quanavale, on the west of the river from capture. Uh, in opinion of Cuban's leader, Fidel Castro, the presence of the Cuban Revolutionary Armed Forces in Angola was in accordance with an internationalist mission to combat colonialism and to defend Angolan independence. A South African victory would have meant not only the capture of Quito and the destruction of the best Angolan military formations, but quite probably the end of Angola's existence as an independent country. So Fidel is saying, if I don't go in there help, they're going to lose their best units. They're going to lose all this billion dollars worth of equipment. You know, they might lose Angola. So they're thinking, well, okay. Uh, I know uh, Castro responded immediately by sending uh, material and uh, 15,000 elite troops to retake the initiative from the Soviets. So the Soviets are like, hey, listen, we've only got like nine advisors over here. They're going to need more help. So Castro says, okay, I'm going to send tanks. I'm going to send my equipment. And I'm going to also send 15,000 of my revolutionary troops that were used to, you know, fighting, you know, against imperialism. Sure. So they're they're ready to go and attack. The first Cuban reinforcements in Quito arrived by helicopter on December 5th, 1987, with about 200 technicians, advisors, officers, and special forces. General Arnaldo Ochoa, a veteran of the 1976 Angola campaign and of tank battles in Ethiopia, was made overall commander of the forces on the government side. Ochoa and Castro were to have serious disagreements in the conduct of the war in Angola. Castro's interference with defense plans may have cost the Cubans dozens of lives in the aftermath of the Angola hostilities. Ochoa was arrested, tried, and executed by firing squad after being found guilty of treason. This uh, or Ochoa uh, has been in there since like what we were discussing earlier the ethiopian somalia battles and he was a tank commander and i'll tell you what he he did a really good job he's been doing this and he'd been involved in angola since 1976 but he was like listen i know what our forces can do i know what to do fidel you, you don't have to be giving me orders from cuba you're not over here boots on the ground so they had some serious disagreements after the war fidel remembered that they had these disagreements and he had him killed you know he's like you know all right you're a bad guy you know you're you're a traitor no he was over there fighting fidel had him lined up and killed by a firing squad general Cintras frias was made commander at quito quanavale the Cubans' initial priority was securing Quito Quanavale, but while reinforcements were arriving at the besieged garrison, they made preparations for a second front to the west of Quito Quanavale in Lebungo, where the SADF had been operating unhindered for eight years. So the general there is saying, okay, not only are we going to rescue the FAPLA forces that are on the other side of the river looking like that, but we're going to go ahead and push over to Labongo 
and basically smash the SADF there because they've been over there for eight years and nobody's messed with them. So the Cubans managed to construct a wooden footbridge over the river. That that, that uh, footbridge was called uh, the Fatherland or Death, which was kind of funny to me. Um, like we said, the bombardment started on uh, 2nd January 1988 with a mix of artillery and airstrikes and a United infantry attack that failed. Basically, they start using some of these artillery strikes, airstrikes against the United and uh, on January 3rd, the SADF destroyed the important bridge across uh, the river using a smart bomb. So they're like, you know, we see these Cubans now. There's there's getting to be 15,000 of them. They're bringing more equipment. They're bringing stuff. We need to blow this bridge so they can't reinforce it. And that's why the Cubans made this little wooden footbridge. They're like, all right, we blew up the real uh, thing. But during this fight, let's talk about the casualties and losses. Um, during this uh, operation, the South Africans had eight killed. Hello, Lightning. How are you? Uh, if you hear any bumps or bruises. So uh, South Africans had eight killed, 22 wounded. Uh, they had three armored vehicles damaged. Unida had four killed, 18 wounded. But on the uh, FAPLA side, they had 150 killed. They lost 33 tanks, you know, just sitting there getting pounded by them, trying to hold this bridgehead. The tanks that they destroyed, though, were kind of a weird mix. They had some of the old T-34-85s, the old uh, tank destroyer, the SU-100. And uh, to be honest, the SU-100 is one of my favorite tank destroyers in World of Tanks. I love playing it. But uh, they also lost uh, some T-54s, some T-55s, T-62s, and these... uh, PT-76s that you had talked that the Americans had faced in their tank battle in Vietnam against the Vietnamese. but So they lost 33 of these tanks (laughs) and and, you know the South Africans didn't lose any. This Oliphant tank was just destroying these tanks from range. They also lost uh, 11 armored vehicles and by that time the Cubans were still sending some troops over but the Cubans running over there, uh, they had 42 killed. The operational results is the bridgehead survived, uh, and the objective of clearing all the Angolans from the east side of the river had still not been achieved. And this concluded Operation Hooper. They're like, hey, we, we've killed a bunch, and we've wiped out a bunch of tanks, and we've wiped out a bunch of their equipment. And now the Cubans are here, but now the Cubans are getting ready to push towards where we're we don't want them to push and we weren't able to push back you know they held them so that was in the operation hooper and this started uh the second phase was operation packer operation packer was a continuation of operation hooper using fresh troops and equipment the battle would take place with a diversionary attack from the south by sadf and the main attack of unita infantry and armor from the north so Basically, what you're saying is the South Africans are going to have their elephant tanks and they're going to make a big push towards the south with their aircraft and stuff like that. And they're going to have an air battle above the air with the Cubans and the Angolans. And they're going to be pushing. So they're going to concentrate on everything. And then they're going to use Rommel's tactic and bring the United 
with their armor and infantry and bring them around the north and flank them and just basically crush them. But unfortunately, the Cubans were ready to push north with their troops, so this is going to get ugly. They're doing a two-pronged attack. At the same time, the South Africans are doing a two-pronged attack. So if you can picture in your mind, there's two prongs for the Cubans and two prongs for the South Africans. They're going to meet head-to-head doing the same exact tactic. FAPLA and Cuban forces begin placed artillery and set up minefields in the front of their positions in the Tumpo Triangle. United soldiers started to take casualties as they were being transported on the backs of the tanks and were exposed to the artillery fire and were forced to retreat. Cuban MiGs bombed SADF supply lines around the Lomba River. This was the route the SADF used to move their supplies. The SADF's main column resumed moving towards Cuban positions, but just over an hour later hit another minefield. This disabled three SADF tanks and again attracted the Cuban artillery. One of the tanks was able to be recovered while the other two remained stuck in the minefield. The South African commander moved his forces back out of the minefield as they attempted to retrieve the damaged tanks. A decision was made to withdraw altogether due to the minefields and heavy artillery attacks from both sides of the river. The tank retrieval did not happen. One was retrieved by the Cubans and taken to the town of Cuido Covell, and the other two remain to this day in the Angolan bush. So what has happened is that United was going to the north. South Africans were doing their diversionary uh, move up to the south. When the Cubans and the FAPLA found out that United was coming, they laid a ton of minefields out front and then to start hitting them with artillery. So the United guys are riding on tanks and they're in trucks and they're headed out. All of a sudden, they're like, hey, we got to stop because of this minefield. They start getting artilleried and they're like, we, we, we got to back off. We got to back off. We can't go any forward. Well, the South Africans are doing their push on the south and they're leading with their elephant tanks and boom, they're in the minefield getting their stuff blown up. But yeah, they tried to retrieve the tanks, and one ended up uh, in the museum over there in Uganda, uh, you know, for being captured. And the other two, to this day, is still sitting out there because they're surrounded by landmines to this day. So if you want to be a collector, and if you've got a mine detector, you might be able to get a couple of tanks pretty, there you go. pretty cheap. Yeah. It was soon realized that the SADF and UNITA would not be able to push the FAPLA Cuban forces out of their Tumpo positions without taking serious casualties. The South African government had also ruled out an attack on Cuido Quanavel from the west. Operation Packer thus came to an end on April 30th of 1988. Okay, so that was basically the end of the Black Stalingrad. The South Africans couldn't move any for- further, kind of like the Germans in Stalingrad. They couldn't move any further. And, you know, they weren't backing up anymore. And, you know, like the Soviets weren't backing up in Stalingrad. So, you know, the South African general called back and said, I can probably keep pushing, but I'm going to lose a lot of guys. They've got nothing but landmines in front of us and artillery. And we're already having a heck of an air battle. They lost some airplanes, too. So they basically wanted to say, okay, the line stabilized. We need to come up with another operation and start withdrawing everybody. 
that's when the peace talks start coming in. This was called, it was an operation to cover the South African Defense Forces withdrawal. What was that called, Russ? I believe it was called Operation Displace. It was a military operation by the South African Defense Force and it involved maintaining the illusion that the SADF had remained in the brigade strength east of Quito, Quanavel at the end of April 1988. Uh, SADF Battle Group 20, uh, this battle group's objective was, and with aid from UNITA, to build minefields between the Tumpo and Dalla Rivers and mine other exits across the Quito River to prevent a further Angolan assault from Quito, Quanavel towards Mavinga and to create the impression that the SADF were still entrenched in the area. This operation would take a few months until the eventual withdrawal of all South African military units from southeastern Angola during August of 1988. The hostilities ceased and a formal peace treaty was signed at Ruokana on August 22, 1988. A peace accord mediated by Chester Crocker was finally signed on December 22, 1988 in New York, leading to the withdrawal of all foreign belligerents and to the independence of Nambia. What an amazing episode. I've got to admit, this is all new to us. Um, if you have any comments and everything, try to private message us. There would be a lot of people that are offended by some of the stuff that we've covered today. If we've triggered anybody, we, we gave you a warning up front. This battle led to a major change. It, it, left, it led to the freedom of uh, Nambia, um, ended the border wars. Basically, apartheid started falling apart. Uh, Mandela was released. So a lot of good came from this, but unfortunately, you always have casualties and losses. And I'm going to discuss some of the losses that they suffered from this battle. This total battle, UNITA forces had 3,000 dead. Um, the South Africans uh, had 42 dead. They lost five of their tanks. Uh, they lost five of their APCs. Six other armored vehicles were lost, and two of their aircraft were shot down, you know, the mirages we were talking about. And one of the mirages actually crashed. It was uh, going in for a bombing run, from what I understand, and got a little too low and had problems and crashed. Man. Wow. Losses on the other side were substantial. FAPLA had 4,768 dead. They had over 10,000 wounded. They had lost 94 tanks. Holy cow. Yeah, 94. They lost 65 armored personnel carriers. They had 12 aircraft shot down. On the Cuban side, uh, with all the troops they sent, they lost 42 army dead. They had seven pilots that were dead. They had three uh, pilots that were shot down and prisoners of war, and they had 70 uh, wounded. But they lost six tanks and uh, lost six aircraft. Now, the Soviet Union technical advisors we were talking about, they had four dead and 31 wounded. So out of the total, you know, Let's talk about the tanks. They lost 105 tanks in this battle. 105 tanks in, in this whole operation, that's a lot of tanks. That that's really a, is. That's yes. a big tank battle. That is. And a lot of people don't know, you know that these tanks got in this war. What an amazing episode, Russ. Yes, I will agree. Uh, very, very interesting. I never really realized all this was going on. I guess I'd have been in high school at that time and never realized all this was going on, I guess, when I was yeah. in school being educated. And, and like I said, uh, if we have any listeners in South Africa or we have anybody that was involved in the, this war, please send us some photos. Um, we always like to get those. Uh, we're going to put as many photos that we can up. 
Um, but this is recent history, so I know there might be some still some scars from people that had to live through this. But a great show. Um, Russ, do you have any closing rem- remarks? Uh, just like always, um, you can always contact us. Your comments, suggestions for future shows, that's all very welcome. Um, get a hold of us at our two takers and a cat at gmail.com for our email address. And like always, you can always message us on Facebook. Um, search for Two Tankers and Cat Podcast on Facebook, and you'll get to our page. Make sure you give us a like and check out what we've got to offer on there. Excellent. On most of the research that I got on this one, uh, I used a lot from uh, Tank Encyclopedia. If you don't know about Tank Encyclopedia, it is a wonderful website. Uh, friends of ours uh, run it. Uh, go by there, throw them some traffic, definitely. Yes, yes. Uh, but just to close out, this is Charlie. And this is Russell. And as always, happy tanking and have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>